Quality sleep is essential. That's why the Sleep Number Smart Bed is designed for your ever-evolving sleep needs. Need a bed that's firmer or softer on either side? Helps you sleep at a comfortable temperature? Sleep Number Smart Beds let you individualize your comfort, so you sleep better together. J.D. Power ranks Sleep Number number one in customer satisfaction with mattresses purchased in-store. And now, save 40% on the Sleep Number Limited Edition Smart Bed for a limited time. For J.D. Power 2023 award information, visit jdpower.com awards. Only at Sleep Number stores or sleepnumber.com. When you're ready to pop the question, the last thing you want to do is second-guess the ring. At BlueNile.com, you can design a one-of-a-kind ring with the ease and convenience of shopping online. Choose your diamond and setting. When you find the one, you'll get it delivered right to your door. Go to BlueNile.com and use promo code LISTEN to get $50 off your purchase of $500 or more. That's code LISTEN at BlueNile.com for $50 off your purchase. BlueNile.com, code LISTEN. Good morning, good afternoon, good evening, wherever you are in the world. On the show today, Yamaha have kicked off launch season and we're not even at the end of January 2023 yet. And there's already rider move rumours going around for 2024. Uh, it's bye-bye officially to front ride height devices. And could it be bye-bye to Aleish Aspargro, who has no interest in racing past 35 years old? He's nearly 34. Uh, we've got a bit of Peko, a bit of Fabio chat too, and a whole lot more coming your way as always over the next hour or so the recording date is wednesday the 18th of january my name is harry benjamin joining me as ever is crash's moto gp editor pete mclaren and of course former grand prix rider and british champion keith hewin but before all of that as much as we're looking forward to a brand new year and a brand new season it's been a particularly sad week for everyone at crash will who is the big boss here at crash his brother david who ran things over at Bike Sport News, sadly passed away last week after a battle with cancer for the last few years. He leaves behind his beautiful wife, Danielle, and three children, Leighton, Lawson, and Aria. And it goes without saying, us and the whole crash team very much have David and his family in our thoughts. It's kind of a worst case scenario for any family, isn't it? And um, when you consider the impact that that Will Miller, David Miller at Bike Sport News, and of course their dad, now Sir Robin Miller, who was the man at EMAP, East Midlands Allied Press, which owned Motorcycle News all those years ago. Um, they are quite a famous, infamous family within motorcycle journalism, if you like. And uh, David had an opinion um, that he stuck by, and I really like that. It wasn't the kind of journalism that's standard. It was, it was hard-hitting. It was controversial sometimes. And he had a huge sense of humour as well. You know, very, very funny, clever fella. Um, Bike Sport News originally started, if you remember, by Chris Carter and Robert Fennell of Donington Park, who ended up owning it and a partner in Dave Hardy. Anybody remember Dave Hardy as well? I don't know where on earth he is nowadays. But Bike Sport News then became available. David Miller picked it up and uh, ran with it, turned it into a digital platform, as we all end up and um, made a, a real success of it. But I think that he'll be remembered for his, for his opinions, for his sense of humour, and for a man who, who was unwavering in pushing forward any story that uh, he thought was going in the right direction. Um, I think that uh, we've had an unlucky month this month, really. I mean, Andrew Wheeler, another man, a photojournalist that many will be familiar with from MotoGP, a, a man larger than life. Um, unfortunately, he passed away as well in the last um, couple of weeks you know had an illness for some time but uh, another personality from the MotoGP paddock so the year started off quite sad really hasn't it it really has hasn't it and of course uh, our thoughts as I said are with everybody and, and obviously Will our big boss as well um, who oversees us and, and really we, we wouldn't be here without Will so uh, all our thoughts especially with him and his family too but one thing we all had in common I think was talking about bikes and in particular MotoGP it's what they did it's what they became synonymous with so we shall do that as well and uh, it is a busy show 
over the next hour or so. Um, and before we get into all things uh, Yamaha launch, I just wanted to say that we have a bit of a new thing for 2023. Uh, now, we love hearing from you. The guys don't know about this. Uh, we love hearing from you and seeing your questions. But would you like to be on the show with us? Would you like your voice to be here? Well, now is your chance. If you have a question uh, that you want to ask the guys, you can send us a voice note with your questions. Uh, keep it to about 30 seconds maximum. Tell us your name, where you're from as well, uh, and email it to us, podcast at crash.net. Real complicated email address, podcast at crash.net. Send us a little voice note with your question, 30 seconds, and we shall play it out on the show and the guys will answer it for you if you fancy that. So isn't that fun? Uh, now, let's get straight into things with Yamaha and Monster Yamaha to give them their full name, have confirmed, well, they were the first MotoGP team to unveil its 2023 colours with Fabio Quattararo and Franco Morbidelli taking the wraps off in Jakarta. Uh, Pete, come to you on this first. Um, What's new on the bike? I mean, they've added a bit of this camouflage look to the livery, but I mean, you've got to squint to see it. Exactly. And you 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 use the right words there, how you were taking the wraps off. I mean, this is just the presentation of the livery. The bike that you saw is not the 2023 race bike. You know, we won't see that until testing starts next uh, well, next month in Sepang. So this is really, as you say, this is just the look of the bike. And that will be the same for all of these presentations that come up now from the factories, because they don't want to give away what they're planning, especially in this aerodynamic era, where you can learn quite a lot just from looking at a bike. They're not going to give that away at a launch when you still got this, well, a couple of months before the start of the season, isn't it? End of March. So they're going to keep what they've got planned under wraps. And this is just really, this is what the bike is going to look like. And uh, as you say, there's a few, a bit of a camouflage touch to it. And, uh, you know, I think they've got rid of a bit of red at the bottom of the fairing. But yeah, this is a presentation. It's a chance. Uh, Indonesia is the biggest Yamaha market. So it's a chance to, to go there get some coverage for the, uh, the launch and everything else before they go to Sepang and, and get serious. So yeah, unfortunately, you know, there was no press conferences or anything at this, at this. So it really was just an unveiling. It wasn't really a launch as such. So we didn't get to hear about, you know, have they found out what happened with the engine at Valencia? Have they fixed that? We did hear from, uh, from Sumi, the, the head of Yamaha Motor Racing, that, that, you know, engine is the top priority still, but we're not going to know if that's actually, or the, the level of success they've had until we see the top speed charts at Sepang. So, yeah, a lot of unanswered questions. Obviously, uh, Fabio was there uh, with Frankie. Uh, we got to hear a bit, an update on, on Fabio's condition with his hand. He fell off his motorbo- motocross bike, uh, I think it was about the, uh, the 10th, 12th of December, and, and fractured his left hand again, the same hand that he, that he damaged at Sepang in the Malaysian Grand Prix. So he actually said he hasn't been on the bike. So he's, had some, you know, he's just been doing cardio training, that kind of thing. But he's been off, off a bike for quite a long time, hopes to be back on it soon um but other than that it was you know the usual things everyone's optimistic at this time of year aren't they everyone wants to do well and uh, and win the world championship of course uh, they also spoke a bit about the sprint races and and the, the changes that that will bring uh, fabio quite interesting in, in saying that the loss of, of free practice for you know this chance to work on the bikes before the race at the same time as the race that going out the window what's that going to mean it's going to be really intense now a lot of pouring over data after the sprint race on Saturday to get the bike ready for Sunday and all the all these sort of changes. If you get injured, you'll lose 37 points if you miss a race weekend now, you know, the 12 for the sprint race and the, and the 25 potentially for the, the Sunday race instead of just the 25. So, you know, consistency, avoiding injuries, all these things are, are playing out. It's, it's going to be interesting, isn't it? I mean, sprint races, they are only half points, but with 21 rounds, there's still, what, 250 points. Well, Banyaya won the title with, I think, about 260 now, it was a low-scoring year, but, I mean, it does just show how important a, a change, a fundamental change, potentially, to the championship these sprint races could be. So, uh, yeah, all all optimism at uh, Yamaha at this stage, but we'll, we'll have to wait a few weeks to find out what goes on there. The next launch is Grassini um, with Ducati uh, this weekend, so that's the next one on the agenda. But they, they follow in pretty quick-fire order now. There's the factory Ducati team next week, I think Pramac as well, Red Bull KTM. A lot of them are going to get their liveries out in public before they're on track uh, at uh, Sepang in uh, early February. It all kicks off really at Sepang. The shakedown test, which has already caused a whole load of grief as far as the journalists are concerned that have already paid to get out there for the shakedown test because Erta, uh, the SMNA, the uh, Dorna, I think, have banned all journalists from the entire track. Can't get in at all for the shakedown test, which is pretty poor shouting really. I mean, Frinet at the press office for Dorna 
she's taken the brunt of some very unhappy journos that have already planned their trip out there um, because now they've got a week out that they didn't need to spend. They could have spent it at home with their families or whatever they might have done. So uh, a little bit of unhappiness already in the uh, media department regarding that. Um, I think that we've got a few things coming up this year. I mean, uh, there's a we've got World Superbike. I'm sorry to bring World Superbike up in MotoGP, but I think it's really relevant. All of the riders, as far as I'm aware, in World Superbike are up for contract at the end of this year, apart from Jonathan Ray and maybe Bautista, I think, perhaps. But most of the World Superbike guys are back up for contract. We've heard that Alicia Spargro doesn't want to race beyond 35 years old, so maybe he's going to be out. There seems to be... There's the possibility of being a bit of turnover coming towards the end of this year when, when contracts start to come back up again. And you've got the fact that World Superbike is raising, rising in popularity massively around the world at the minute, a bit like it used to be in the 80s where World Superbike was ahead of MotoGP in many marketplaces around the world. Are we going to see that again this year? Um, is World Superbike going to be making a bit of a comeback and, and be one of the most popular? I mean, Dorna will be keeping an eye on it. They own both series at the end of the day. Um, Pete, you alluded to it. You used the word intense. Absolutely. The intensity of this year for MotoGP teams, personnel and riders is going to be massive. Extra race, obviously, on a Saturday. Different strategy for a sprint race and everything else. Loss of that free practice four. That's massive. That was the one session, the half an hour session during the weekend where I won't say they could relax, but it gave them an opportunity to just try that last few tweaks to try and get it working. With a full tank of fuel, remember, you you, you had an opportunity to put it in race trim for that, that particular time. There's not that anymore. We used to say you go qualifying for qualifying. Free practice was qualifying to get into the right qualifying session, not qualifying one or qualifying two. You, you wanted to be obviously in the right qualifying session that gave you the opportunity to fight for the front four rows of the grid. You know, that is going to be even more intense this year. I can see, you know, add a few injuries into this, and we have got a massively topsy-turvy year this year. Um, Yamaha, are they going to be able to fix what they're going to be? The only, you know, inline four that's going to be fighting amongst them all out there. Aprilia have got a motorbike that really is, is second at the moment to, to Ducati in performance. And if they manage to pull something out of the bag, they've got four bikes on the grid, so they're going to have all the data they need coming this year to try and work it through for their main riders. And the big, the big deal for me, the, I'm just going to have to check this again, because the, the man that really shook everybody up, including Aleish, was Miguel Oliveira. I'm just taking a look at the, the, the Valencia test. First time he got out on it, he was right up there. Miguel Oliveira on the Aprilia could be the shock issue of, of 2023. Um, and you're going to see a few, you know, Yamaha, are they going to sort these Valencia problems out? Again, when you've got no time for engineering, yeah, they must be, you know, you heard how unhappy Quattararo was. We've heard how unhappy Mark Marquez is with the way Honda are going. The, the, the direction that some of these guys are going in, there is no time. It comes back to that old issue, doesn't it? There's no time to make the kind of changes that you have to to make a difference. You can fine-tune, but nothing big in the engineering department for these guys. If they're, they're going to end up running what they brung um, come this year. It's going to be fascinating, isn't it? But as Pete mentioned, you know, the, the impact of the sprint races, you both said, you know, it'll be 42 races technically and, and the loss of stuff like FP4 and, and all, all brings a big effect. But I've also just been reading about the amount of crew chief changes. 12 riders are all getting a new uh, crew chief. Mir, Rins, Nakagami, Bassini, Giantonio, uh, Marquez, Vinales, Oliveira, Espargo, Fernandez, Zarco, Ralph Fernandez. What, Keith, what kind of impact does does that have on a rider i suppose you know are you lucky if you could just click straight away or is that a whole relationship that you have to to build and focus on well it is a relationship that you build and focus on but the trouble is it does get stale you know at the end of the day sometimes a change is as good as a rest it's a very old-fashioned saying but sometimes a new crew chief brings in new ideas you've still got the information that you had from your old crew chief in your own head from a rider perspective what does that guy bring to the table and with Suzuki disbanding some bloody good guys that were suddenly available um, for the teams and they've taken a real opportunity to turn this over it's been a real turnover in the paddock for crew chief and and, and technical specialists and it's going to be it's a very very interesting year they've had to increase I would suggest they've had to increase their personnel a little bit as well sprint race you know you've, you've got you haven't got the time to concentrate on what you've got to disseminate. When you've got data that you're working through on a timescale that's so short during the course of racing weekend, sometimes you have to split your strategy slightly. You're going to have to have one, one, you know, 
main chief working on one particular strategy and maybe somebody else backing that up with with more information and more ideas as we move through the year you know i'd be interested to see the books for this season because this is going to cost teams a lot more money you know to do what they're doing you know in a time where money is tight you know you've got two races of the weekend You've got all the extra bits and pieces that you've got to do with that. And, but more than anything, you've got to chuck people at it to, to be able to disseminate all of that data and work out where you're going during the course of the weekend. Time costs money. You, me- you mentioned Suzuki there, Keith. Of course, his other rumour that's going round is that Ken Kawachi might be on his way to Honda. I mean, wow. If that's the case, big move, very rare that, uh, and and yeah, famous for the clipboard hug, isn't he? In uh, you know, during all the sessions, whatever's on that clipboard will be making its way potentially over to HRC. I mean, very rare, isn't it? The top Japanese guys change manufacturers and, uh, you know, but I mean, what choice has he got, if you like, if he wants to stay involved in racing, Suzuki's not well, pulling out of MotoGP, they're pulling out of everything, aren't they? So really. Yeah, so, Suzuki so, closed shop. Yeah. They, they even shut their Twitter feed and their, their media. You know, everything just suddenly came to an end, which is... It's got to be unprecedented. I cannot remember a time when a factory did did that ever. Proper sad times. That, will be, I course. shed a tear on that when uh, you just see. I think it just says S or whatever or Team S, and it's all just blank now. That their Twitter and Instagram. It's so upsetting. But I mean, clearly, there's lots of you know with more races, more personnel needed, bigger budgets, you know, money's got to come from somewhere, I suppose, and and lots of rumours already rife. And and you know, while we were on the subject of Yamaha early on, that was one of the the big sort of uh rider rumors that are going on even now you, you speak we might get a whole sea change with lots of world superbike riders up for grabs at the end of the year and motor gp riders not performing one of which is franco morbidelli this is a make or break year for him right and already jorge martin has been touted to potentially go to yamaha to replace him but uh, also top rap rasgati ugly uh, your man keith also up there as well could make the switch finally to MotoGP if Morbidelli fails to deliver again Keith who would you choose well I mean Top Rack obviously it will be interesting I mean I don't want to oversell Top Rack Rasgadioglu he's he's obviously brilliant world superbike got a massively brilliant feel for a motorbike in fact anything a scooter I saw in an, an M3 BMW doing donuts the other day around a camera you know the guy the guy has just got so much oozing natural talent but of course, that last one percent that you need to be a top motor GP rider, we'll find out if he's got it. Um, if he's got a good team around him, I mean, Keenan Sofaroglu, the, the the what five times World Supersports champ, he's his manager, and he's a tough cookie. Both of them Turks, um, and they are you know pretty much focused on on making sure Top Rack gets the right ride. So somebody somewhere. Such a lot to shake out this year. There really is such a lot to shake out. Top Rack is is obviously hanging around there waiting for it. Let's see the way World Superbike shapes up. I mean, Scott Smart, who, you know, nephew of Barry Sheen, son of Paul Smart, brilliant, um, technically brilliant. Uh, I was going to say young man. He isn't so young anymore. But um, Scotty was the FIM technical director who's just got fired. Um you know, the trouble is when you when you you're forceful in your opinion and you're forceful in trying to trying to make something work. <laughs> Incidentally, great mates, best friends with David Miller, um, who we obviously introduced the show with. So Scott will be hurting at the moment as well. Um, but they were great friends, and they were also very very strong in their opinion of which way things should go and the way that things are. So you can understand why those two are such good mates. But Scott obviously smudged the wrong toe at some stage. But Scott has been responsible for the technical regs at World Superbike. Now, that's been quite controversial um, during the time because obviously not 500 revs off the Kawasaki, which Kawasaki definitely suffered from uh, this last year. My question is, of course, is whether the new technical director will relax that a little bit and allow World Superbike to have a little bit more headroom as to what they can do for each manufacturer instead of kind of, um, what's the word I'm looking for, manipulating the, the overall control. Now, Scott also put together the rules for the future World Supersport Series because obviously we've got different configurations of motorbike coming into World Supersport as well. So the guy that takes over from Scott Smart better be smart because there's a lot of work to do there. And and so World Superbikes, you know, it'll be interesting to see what bearing that has on anything during the course of the MotoGP year. Um, A, it's going to be vying for popularity. 
B, it may be an alternative for MotoGP riders to drop to, or there might be a couple of gems that come up from, from World Superbikes. Unlikely because World Superbike riders haven't naturally done brilliantly well in MotoGP. Um, part of the reason might be that, that you know, they're a bit longer in the tooth by the time they get across the other way. I mean, I've always argued that Jonathan Ray should have been given an opportunity properly. And the only couple of goes he had on a, on a Repsol Honda, he did brilliant in my view, and he didn't bin the thing either, which which you might have expected. Um, back in Aragon, I think he was a few years ago now, but but he was young enough then to have come forward. Jonathan Ray will not move out of World Superbike now, not a chance of it, because obviously his age, his family and his, his future. But Top Rack is, is, is the right one. Whether there's any others that can come back from there, I don't know. But Top Rack surely has got to be on shopping lists, surely, in MotoGP. It'd be a real shame not to see him on a MotoGP bike, wouldn't it, at some stage? We'd all be thinking, what if, and be discussing it for years to come, what might Top Rack have done? So let's hope that he does get the chance. Uh, as you say, Harry, the, this factory seat at Yamaha, it's the only one, I think, that we know of, let's say, in public. There's always maybe options and clauses, isn't there, behind the scenes. But, it, you know, Morbidelli's is the only ride, in theory, that's up for grabs at the end of this year in a factory team. All the other places are signed, are signed up for two years. So there's obviously going to be a lot of people looking at that. And it's just going to, a lot of it is going to come down to the bike again. You know, if, if Yamaha make a big step with the engine, they can take their pick. There might be other guys that, that suddenly decide, you know what, that's the bike we want. On the other hand, if it struggles again, you might see you know, Jorge Martin, you mentioned him. He's obviously been sort of overlooked in favor of Bastianini. So he's probably been a bit stung by that and is you know, unsurprisingly thinking, well, maybe I've got to look around elsewhere. He's he's probably assumed he'd be, having been in Pramac, that he was going to take the next step to the factory team at Ducati. But now you've got two young guys there. I mean, in theory, Bagnar and Bastianini, they could form that factory Ducati team lineup for years to come, couldn't they, age-wise? So maybe he's thinking, well, if I want to be a factory team rider, and we know that only factory team riders have won the MotoGP Championship so far, he, he's going to have to go elsewhere. No, so a lot of it's going to depend on though how competitive is the Yamaha this year because we know the Ducati's good, and the other option he's got is, you know, make history. This is what he's saying at the moment, isn't it? By winning the championship with a satellite team, you know, that would really put your name in the history books. So, a lot of it's going to come down to to how you know how these bikes perform, as we've been saying at the Sepang test and beyond the early rounds, because these decisions are going to be taken in the early stages um, for next year. And uh, yeah, but. That's the one that obviously people are focusing on. Pressure on Morbidelli. I mean, 19th in the World Championship last year, his worst ever season, you know, below even his rookie year on a Mark VDS Honda. That can't continue from either side, you know, for, from Morbidelli's side. He will not want to remain if that's going to just continue for, for, for his sake as well. So there's, there's got to be some changes there in terms of the performance. That's the pressure on a rider, but there's pressure on the manufacturers as well. KTM had a dog, dog of a year last year, didn't work out at all with them. But it's going to be interesting to see whether birthday boy today, actually, Jack Miller, um, 28 years old today, whether he comes out of his corner fighting. I mean, Brad Binder and Jack Miller in the same team, that's pretty formidable. If KTM have actually made the changes they need to have made over the winter, they fell behind last year. Um, that could be a, a formidable team. 28 for me, I've always said 28 is a sweet spot from a rider's point of view. It's where that raw talent meets that bang on maturity, the experience of racing at this level for this long, fitness-wise, mentally, all the things that you need to have. You're at your sharpest peak for me at 28 years old. That's the, that is the time where a motorcycle racer is in, that, in his best position. Raw talent, they've all got raw talent at this level. They've all got it. You know, they're all fast. They're all brave. They all know what they've got to do. But when that maturity reaches to temper it perfectly, some, some reach that point earlier. Cotteraro is a good example of that. He'll take the points wherever he is. Even Marquez has, has got to that point quite early as well in his career where he'd take the best he can. But I think Jack Miller, we're going to keep an eye on him. If KTM come up with the goods, I think Jack Miller is going to be a bit more of a force than we thought. And as I said, Miguel Oliveira in Aprilia, I think he is going to have a brilliant year. And he's, he's in, effectively, he's in a satellite team. Um, I don't think the difference between full factory and satellite is as great anymore. I think where it's going to be more difficult for satellite teams this year is because of the sprint race, because of their personnel. Satellite teams have notoriously less personnel. They don't have as many people as a factory team to service each and every one of the bikes and riders in the kind of intense program that they've got coming up this year. So I think that's where satellite teams might struggle a bit more. 
But having said that, satellite teams quite often are on a bike that maybe is a little older, which means they've got all the data already. They're not fighting against brand new data, brand new information that's coming in with the new motorbike. So when they've already got that default setting for each and every track, and I'll contradict myself again there because we've got so many tracks that are coming this year that we've not been to before, and we haven't even covered that yet, that, that there's going to be brand spanking new data that they're going to have to get straight away. And maybe the satellite teams with that bank of data already will be in a better position on Free Practice One than some of the full factory new, brand spanking new, all new shiny, we've not tried it before, uh, motorbikes. We'll see. We shall see. Well, look, let's uh, let's stick into that. But just a quick word first from our lovely sponsor for this uh, week's podcast. Um, about you, but uh, I'm sure Keith and Pete feel the same. But we're already thinking about holidays this year, as it is blue January after all. So how do you fancy having something to look forward to in 2023 and planning your escape with Brittany Ferries? Whether you're a seasoned traveller or want to experience places like France and Spain for the first time, uh, Brittany Ferries is the way forward with space to relax and unwind in comfort vibrant and historical cities breathtaking countryside beautiful beaches and so much more are all waiting for you and there is even more of a reason to get booking straight away as britney ferries have a limited time offer you can book a flexi ticket for the same price as a standard ticket amendable up until four hours before your outward sailing and with a low deposit their flexi ticket means you can book with confidence with the added security that your plans can change as and when you need them to uh, offer ends 28th of february 2023 and for more information simply head to brittanyferries.com forward slash bikers so what are you waiting for but today and experience a richer way to travel with Brittany ferries so thank you very much to them i can't wait for our trip but i think we should do a little group a group cruise shall we do that i'll tell you what it, it brings back happy memories i remember the amount of boats that we used to have to travel on obviously with the trucks and stuff like that and and with the fans traveling on the same ferries quite often across to france or wherever we were going across the you know, over to Assen particularly, which is a, a favourite for the Brits. But one of the ones I used to like was the, the, the boat that used to take us to Sweden because they had obviously, they had a disco. Haha, you don't get those very often nowadays. Disco tech. <laughs> they have a club on board this thing and everybody just gets completely destroyed and it's, uh, it's very unprofessional but bloody good fun. <laughs> and uh, so happy memories of smelling diesel and beer. That's a, that's a ferry. And if that you. doesn't sell it to you, I don't know what will. <laughs> Um, well, yeah, BrittanyFerries.com forward slash bikers. That's what you need. Um, right, let's carry on with the show then. Um, so, I mean, we're, we're sort of looking ahead to the year, aren't we? And there is a lot to sort of look forward to. But I'm wondering if if I can narrow you down to, to sort of three things that you're each most looking forward to this year. What would they be? Well, for me, Aprilia. I've got, I, know, I can't believe I'm saying that because I think Aprilia dropped the ball a couple of years ago. They kept on promising that they were going to have a faster motor come the start of the year and they never seemed to quite get there. And all of a sudden, they, they hired the, the Formula One guy in. He, he seemed to... And I remember thinking then, I'll tell you what, I'm a born cynic. I remember thinking, what? You know, really? It worked. <laughs> so just got to show you what the hell do I know. <laughs> and, and, and they're engineering it, bearing in mind how small a factory they are. And what they'd taken on. I mean, it was it was sort of Herculean, really. I mean, Aprilia has a great reputation from a racing point of view. But it's, you know, funding-wise, although it's owned by a massive group, it still will have had the budget for Aprilia as a, as a brand. And I think in 2022, if they manage to keep that momentum going, Ducati have got to watch out. You know, we'll see how much these changes, ride height adjustments and all this, you know, the, the slightly different rules, um, what that is going to do from a from a, a change perspective, um, but now that they've got four bikes on the grid, not just two, and good guys on them, it's going to be a good year for Aprilia. I can see that coming. So that's that's one. one. Pete, Go you on, have Pete. one now. Yeah, um, I would say uh, the, the, the Bastianini Bagnaia mm. sort of contest, shall we say, at Ducati dynamic. Yes, I think you know Ducati. We were mentioning Jack Miller, and he played a great team role didn't he at Ducati in really supporting Banyaya last season you know that that moment at uh, Bury Run where before the wet race where he went over in the pits didn't he before and just sort of gave Banyaya the, the the sort of the boost of confidence of you can do this because he'd had a few bad wet races hadn't he I mean you know completely different now you've got two 
two tigers, if you like, haven't you, uh, in the same pit garage. And um, yeah, I mean, Bastianini is going to that team with his sights on the world championship. There's no doubt about it. Um, whereas Bagnaia is clearly the reigning champion and the man to beat. So let's see how that goes. I think it could be pretty exciting. We saw some great battles between them last year. Clean, in fairness, uh, obviously quite tense at times, given what could have happened if it had gone wrong. But it's going to be, I think that's that's certainly one for me to watch out for and look forward to this year. Fair enough. Second one for me, starting off at Portugal. I think that's a great shout. Qatar... We'd all done that, and we all got cheesed off with Qatar going to Qatar. It was it wasn't it wasn't a great start to the year really. Your time zone was out. It was at night time. It's in the middle of a desert. It was always you know. I mean, I'm, I can understand why they went to go to Qatar because of the amount of money that the Qataris obviously paid to be there. But uh, great to be going to Portimao, the first track of the year. I mean, what a way to start a Grand Prix season on a proper motorbike track. Um, and in Portugal as well at that time of the year, it's, it could be it could be cool, um, but we'll wait and see. But I think Portimao is definitely a better start to the season than Qatar, personally. I think so. I'd agree with that as well. For my next one, then I'd go for Honda. I think, uh, you know, all these changes that we're seeing, Juan Mir coming in, Alex Rins, potentially this their old technical manager coming in. I mean, if that proves true and Ken Kawachi comes across, that's a massive boost for Mir and Rins to have the guy that they've been working with for the past few years who knows exactly how they like a motorbike. And we know the Honda is, is a bit difficult at the moment to have him come across in charge and be tuning that bike for them. And that's before we can get to Mark Marquez. You know, Mark now, hopefully he's got this movement back in his arm. He was still a bit raw and fresh, wasn't he, at the end of last year, but he was doing better. Now he's had a winter to recover, build the strength. What's Mark going to do? Is he going to come out? You know, everyone's looking at Quattararo and Banyai, these guys. You know, is Mark going to come out and just just shock them all again? He could do, couldn't he? We know how fast he is. So I would just go with Honda in general on that. I think there's so many storylines there. It's a good shout. Mark and Alex, his brother, have been out at Aragon on 600s, haven't they? Been on Supersport bikes at 600s just last week. So they're, they're, they're proper taking it seriously. Um, regarding that my third one then um, sprint races I was a bit kind of skeptical originally when it first when it, I, I, I don't need you I'm a bit too old in the long in the tooth and a, a bit of a traditionalist with regard to, to, to some things but I thought about it and I think it's a good idea I'm looking forward to sprint races on a Saturday it's going to be hard from a team perspective and perhaps that's what what probably had my cynical view right up originally mm-hmm. because the amount of work these guys are doing behind the scenes, I mean, you can't appreciate just how hard they all work and the hours they do and the travel this year they've got to do as well. That's the other point. You look at the, the, the travel sequence and it's, it's going to be, they're all going to be knackered. Um, but I'm looking forward to sprint races. I think it's going to add a dynamic to it. It's not just for the show. They're proper races. Okay, they're shorter, but they are going to be intense. You're not going to worry about tyres. You're not going to worry about tyre degradation. It's going to be an absolute balls out, flat out <laughs> race from lights to flag. And I'm looking for But it to won't that. be a Grand Prix win. Yeah. Not yet. Not yet. Not, you think that'll change? Yeah. <laughs> That's the only thing I don't agree with. You know, if you're up against the world world contenders and it's world championship points, still a Grand Prix. But I suppose from a marketing point of view I mean, didn't you have that in Formula One where we, we couldn't quite make out what the one race was compared with another race? You weren't allowed to call it yeah, something. Yeah, well, because well, F1 that. did it, it so... I, actually, I still don't understand the World Superbike. <laughs> <laughs> Super Bowl and all the rest of it. Yeah. I kind of I kind of still don't get it. It's never been explained to well, me properly, That's, I don't that's think. the danger I, I find, right? All this may be great for entertainment, maybe, but does it, you know, and, and I'm not just saying a MotoGP exclusive, it's the same for F1 and, as you say, World Superbike. Does it then alienate some people because it just it saturates it it becomes a bit more difficult to understand what's what like the f1 example is you know they were getting well, pole maybe, position, maybe. but that wasn't pole position it wasn't a win they were getting pole but could you call it pole they weren't sure you know well maybe if you maybe if you're over 50 and you can't uh, can't kind of work i'm just trying to look out, after you keith that that's all. i don't know i mean it, <laughs> i know i mean it, it's difficult to keep up i try and keep all the paperwork in front of me but it's just I mean, you you guys that don't have any paper, you just work on, on a on That's a, a lot. Screen. I've got I'll a bit of paper here. The biggest problem I have yeah, nowadays... Yeah. <laughs> oh, good. I'm glad to see it. The biggest problem I have nowadays is I turn up at a racetrack to do a commentary. Well, I used to. And uh, and basically, you go to the to the press office and you say, right, can I have uh, the sheets for this? Sh-? They're online. <laughs> They're online, yeah. 
What do you mean they're online? I need a, you know, when you're a commentator, you, you need the hard copy so you can write all the details and all the bits and pieces in it. You need to do that. You can't do that on your screen and you can't change screen fast enough to be able to keep up yeah. with these things. And somehow the green lobby have, have come up with, no, oh, no, we're not going to give you any paper. You can't possibly use paper. I mean, I've never wiped my backside on my computer screen. You do need paper for some things. You know, it's kind of like... <clears throat> Honestly, I, I don't know. I don't know when this um, the, the green lobby um, when it, when it sort of common sense is still used. But um, we need paper. No, stuff. you know, even I agree with that. I, like, when I, I still can't. I, if I'm if I'm commentating, I have to write like write it down on a piece of paper. I, I, I yeah, I have an iPad there as well, but I still need something to like actually hold and write on. I still think you know I'm all for saving the trees, but you know, um, not for commentary. Um, Pete, what, what's your third third thing you're looking forward to? It was going to be oh, sprint right, races, okay. but I'm going to come up with another. But what I would, I would just like to say one more thing about the sprint races is I hope we don't end up, given, as you guys have been saying, that they're not officially going to be MotoGP wins, which is, is I agree with you guys. I, I actually think that they should be. I hope we don't end up with what if it's- the sprint races deciding the championship. And what I mean by that is we end up with the champion is someone who wins a load of sprint races, and maybe one or two MotoGP Sunday races, if you see what I mean, and, and then gets podiums or whatever else. Because, as we've said, there are a lot of points up for grabs here. And, you know, I, I think it's unlikely. But as I say, 250 points, that would have put you second in the championship. So if you won every single sprint race this year, didn't even turn up on the Sunday, and, and it was like last season, you'd have finished second. Now, that was an unusual year. I doubt it's going to happen. But I just, I, that is just my concern is that we'll end up with sprint races, which are apparently not real races, uh, actually deciding the championship. And we might end up with a, a championship battle where one guy's really good on the Saturday, the other guy is even better on the Sunday, and they don't really meet. I mean, that's, that's also well, you a can, possibility, isn't it? You, you can see all of, all of your trolls are going to be working out, well, there's a sprint race champion and a, and a Grand Prix champion. <laughs> yes. You know, you're gonna you're almost gonna have two championships going at the end of the day, and then they'll amalgamate them to give us our overall champion. Look, there's always gonna be these kind of picky arguments. I I kind of trying to to forget about that for the time being. We are where we are. It's a it's a it's a it's a good experiment. It should give us entertainment and a race entertainment on a Saturday, which is who's arguing with that? We get an extra race. Um and at the end of the day, I, I think, you know maybe Grand Prix sprint or something. It's a shame that it's not. If you're scoring points towards the Grand Prix championship, then really it's a Grand Prix race. But it's a picky point, isn't it, at the end of the day? We'll see how it all works out. I think it's going to be good this year, and I don't want to be negative about it. So I'm looking forward to it, and I hope um, most people are. I, I think it will be good, yeah. I think we've in the modern sports world now, the world of TikTok and Instagram and reels and short clips, You know, having all of these days of practice people aren't prepared to sit through all that, are they? They want the action. And I think it balances things out. This Saturday race, I agree with everything other than it not counting as a win. That's 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 my summary of it. Do you know what? You, you've just, you just, did you see the old nerve? I got the twitch then for a moment when you said that. You know, the other thing that they could do that would be very, very good from an enhancing, enjoyable part of the sport would be to allow better access for media in the paddock these guys need to work harder you know like we need more access we need sorry to mention drive to survive because i can't remember the name of the motor gp version of it but what we should have is a is a is a, a live version of that there should be access should be allowed you know more than it is i think that Riders and teams are obviously certain parts of the technical, you know, in the garage and the like that you can't have cameras on because, you know, gearboxes and stuff like that. It's all protected copyright stuff and so on. But there should be NASCAR. Let's, let's, let's go completely left of field. NASCAR, part of their constitution is they are committed to having to give access to their drivers, their teams and the like. And I think it makes a better program for it. Now, NASCAR is not perhaps you know, the thoroughbred sport that, that um, the Americans think it is. Um, from our point of view, it's not a prototype series like we have in MotoGP. But you imagine the kind of access that we could have with the, with the riders that we we need to get to speak to instantaneously, instead of scurrying off to the back of the truck or back to to the, the motorhome in MotoGP cases. Um, I just think that there's a there's a gap for the digital side of things, more access to riders, to teams, 
than what we get at the moment. I think that that should be sort of forced a little bit more on them, mm. if you like. Everybody's going to hate me for that in the <laughs> yeah. paddock. But I'm not in there anymore, so I don't well, no, mind. If, if MotoGP are listening, well, just stick stick us three in the pit lane and we'll just get you all the behind-the-scenes access and, uh, and have a great time. Yeah, but you're not allowed to. But you're yeah, not but- allowed to. That's that's the whole thing. You have to make appointments yeah. through their PRs, which which some – it always makes me smile. Public relations, PR, they are there to facilitate the media um, to their team. And yet quite often all they are is doorman. Can't come in here, mate. Got the wrong trainers on. <laughs> you know, they, they, they make it harder for you rather than easier. Not all. Suzuki are, are, were, were an absolute standout. Tech 3, you know – you know, Hervé Poncherol's daughter um, looked after that side of things whenever you wanted it. There are some, and I think even when you've got people like Frenet that, that runs the Dorna Media Office, what a great job that lady does. You know, she is dealing with the most miserable people in the world, MotoGP photographers to start with, <laughs> and then journalists who are usually disaffected by travel or whatever it might be and the fact they're not making any money. You know, these these guys are having a hard time, and Frine just does such a great job. I love the lady. I mean, she always helped me in the time that I was in the paddock. And and you know, you only have to ask, and she nothing is too much trouble generally, as long as you're not a pain in the backside, obviously. But it just seems to me that 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 sometimes team PR is you've got to be there at this time, and then they'll change the the briefing time so that it's it's it, it doesn't coincide. You know, something else is on at the same time, or or the media briefs are all at the same time, so you can't you can't split yourself between three or four riders. You know, it, it just seems to lack coordination of some kind in that side of things. And I think door stopping is not allowed. You know, if I had a camera with me and Valentino Rossi is walking across the car park, you are not supposed to door stop him. And the, and that PR will bloody well cut you off. You won't get another interview with him. You know, officially because you had the bloody temerity to go and doorstop him as he walked across the car park. And yet that's the best time. I used to go to work early, get to the, the track early, park the car up in the car park and just lean against the fence. And you've got team personnel, you've got riders coming in early, obviously, all before they had their early you know, breakfast or whatever it might be at the track. And you've got conversation with them for commentary. And it's gold, obviously. For, but I didn't need a camera with me at that point, And no one else knew about that. It only came out in commentary during the during the broadcast but i think that kind of stuff you know within reason i mean it's, you can't have a dozen bloody film crews all bloody lining up to get someone out when they get out of their car it'd be a pain but there should be more access i think the public deserve more of that kind of candid off the wall stuff and and this is where this is where you know this whole furore if you like about the uh, the shakedown test comes in isn't it keith where, where suddenly it's completely closed you know it's it's a weird one the shakedown test because You've got all of the t- all of the manufacturers there with all of their new bikes, and, and and officially, you know, if there was anyone with concessions, they could go there as well. So in the past, there's been Aprilia, KTM, Suzuki. Obviously, no one's got concessions now, so they're not there. But rookies as well, so it'd be Augusto Fernandez. And yet, all of the media and presumably any fans are completely locked out of it, even though it's only two days before an official test at exactly the same track with all of the paddock there. And and I'll tell you know, what. I've been to about it's, 10 of these shakedown tests and they've been getting gradually worse in terms of the access, in terms of, you know, you get told you can't go into pit lane, you can't go out of the paddock, you can't leave the media room. It's been getting worse and worse and worse. But now it seems there's been just a complete freeze on anything and you're not allowed even in the paddock. I mean, incredible. And the trouble is that, uh, as Keith said earlier, people have booked flights, they booked hotels, they booked hire cars you know, already, and now they don't need them. Um, and this whole thing of access, I mean, it's the perfect springboard into the season. We haven't had any bikes on track for three months, and it's a nice way to build up, isn't it? You haven't got the official stars, sure, but you've got the new bikes, and it just it gets MotoGP in the news. It gets fans if they're allowed in, because I think first day is a Sunday. Kuala Lumpur is an hour up the road. Let people drive down, go to the grandstand for free, take some pictures on their phones, you know, uh, watch an hour or two of testing, go back home. It would just it just gets that everything going, but this is where, to be honest, it's a shame that Dorna don't run that test and just go look. You can't lock people out like this. You've got to let people in. You can't have. I mean, the secrecy argument is 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 would be ridiculous because all of the manufacturers are next to each other in yeah. pit lane. Um, yeah, and you know. you've got and you've got two da- two days before you're going to have the proper test. I tell you what, it it sounds like a challenge to me. It comes comes back to what I said, access. You know, suddenly they're denying access. And as soon as you do that, you know, it's like a, an undemocratic type situation. I, I don't 
you know, it's kind of ruling against us. It's like a committee have said he can't do it. But for me, it would be a challenge. You know, like, where's my drone? I'm going to fly my drone over <laughs> over, over Sepang because no one can catch you when you've got a drone. If you fly in from outside, you can do what you like. Hiding in the hedge. It reminds me, it reminds me of the old days. What was that guy's name? Isle of Man. Brian Kreisky. There you go. Video Vision Broadcast. Now, Video Vision Broadcast had no rights to anything. They used to climb over the fence, shoot the hell out of it, and it went on the the very early satellite television days. I can't remember the names of the programs now, but, but Greenlight Television, who are on the Isle of Man still, were born out of Video Vision. You know, Dave Banyan, uh, Richard Nichols, and Rob Herdman, the three guys that used to work for Brian Kreisky. Fortunately, those three in Greenlight did it properly and, and gathered the licenses and the, the passes that they need. But back in the early Grand Prix days of television, video vision broadcasting through Brian Kreisky just used to cut under fences and come over the top and shoot the hell out of it all on, on two cameras. And it used to turn up on satellite television back in the day. It was the Wild West back then for television. <laughs> but why would you not actually allow... Pete, you're so bang on dead right. I mean, bearing in mind that we're not talking about a rich country here, Malaysia. Um, it's, it's not the poorest, but it's not, not the wealthiest. For someone to go in during Grand Prix weekend for three days, it's still quite a bit out of their wages. You know, to give them a free day, can you imagine on a test day? They, they would be full of kids, full of... And that's the kind of thing that you really want. And yet in Asia, it would be so well supported. Um, yeah, okay, they've got to pay for the main, main days for, for racing and stuff, but... It's a community thing almost, isn't it? I mean, you just would would allow it. I mean, I, I suppose there are costs involved in it. You're going to have to have security. You've probably got to have policing and so on. But it just doesn't seem that access has kept up with the progress that we've made in all the other areas of, of MotoGP, to me. No, I think you're both bang on. They need to redo whatever that attempt was at uh, the Netflix Drive to Survive because it was just, uh, if, if anything, I think it caused more damage. They need, because um, Golf has just done one with a PGA Tour uh, that's coming out and it's the same producers as Drive to Survive and te- there's a tennis one that's just come out now and I just think, well, just get those producers <laughs> to do it for MotoGP. I mean, uh, <laughs> well, there are, there are some brilliant producers out there. I mean, I could name half a dozen from where I'm sat at the moment that, that work at Sky F1 and, and other places that I've worked with back in the day for the IndyCar and so on. You know, there's some very, very good, innovative young producers who could could make that work. It it comes down, and I think this was the crux with ours, was, was budget. They you didn't know, want to spend the money. If you try and cheapskate, yeah, if you try and cheapskate on a, on a production, you're going to end up with a production that, that looks cheap. That's... It is absolutely the way it works. You know, if you've not got enough editors to look through all the footage and just make the best of every single thing that you've got, every comment, just logging that stuff, hundreds and thousands of hours of footage. I mean, back in the day, you know, when we would do a highlights program for for BSB, World Superbike, Grand Prix bikes back in the 500s when I was covering those as well, you'd sit in a booth for a week scrolling through tape as it was back then, it wasn't even bloody digital, through a tape and wait until somebody spoke, listen to it, move to the next person, wait until some, And it take, it's painstaking to make a, a, a three-minute promo, three minutes, you know, opener titles um, at the beginning of a program would take a really good experienced editor and a producer and maybe, a, a, you know, an assistant producer all day to make three minutes. So Drive to Survive is is an absolute performance i told you last at the end of last year i watched drives to survive i've never watched it before i thought i'll I'll watch one just to see what happens well i was six in and it was bloody three o'clock in the morning by the time i I was you know it was one it was just infectious and i'm thinking bikes sorry are better than this and yet we've not, um, personalities in bikes generally, although having said that, it's not fair because Formula One have got some personalities now, it would seem, um, across the board. So it's it's slightly better in Formula One now than it ever has been for me. Um, but bikes have got that as in, in abundance. They're everywhere. You've got jokers and bloody playboys and, and families and, and everything you could possibly want to make a brilliant, brilliant movie. But you have got to spend so much time and so much money getting that, shortened down to an hour a week or whatever it might have been different really difficult job but it can be done but it needs big money it does come on motor gp get it together let's do it 
Um, let's get your hand in your pocket, Harry. <laughs> Maybe Crash can fund it. I don't know. <laughs> we'll we'll get we'll get on that. We'll no, I don't move. think so. But uh, let's uh, we're sort of approaching uh, the end of the show. But uh, I want to talk a little bit, Pete, about the uh, front ride height devices. Um, just because I mean, we mentioned it. <laughs> in the last show which was about a month ago i think we were talking about how they were were probably going to go that has now officially happened but it seemed like there was quite a a, it wasn't as straightforward not every team wanted it to happen no no obviously there's there's one one very obviously (laughs) so we i mean all of these technical things, and Keith's explained this before, they get discussed in the Manufacturers Association. That's where technical stuff is gets thrashed out by and large. Um, now, you don't often get to hear exactly, obviously, what goes on inside that. But we'd heard rumours that, you know, this ride height thing was causing a bit of a rift, to put it mildly, between the manufacturers. And then we got this announcement, I think it was uh, on the eve of the, the Qatar opener um, last year, that, that these front ride height devices would be banned for the following season. Now, as, as you say, I spoke to Corrado Cecchinelli, um, the director of technology, to just find out the background to this because the manufacturers um, made clear that it was a proposal from Dorna's side that, that they then were discussing. And that's what they eventually passed, if you like, as far as ban the front, leave the rear, but give one season before you ban the front if you like now that the idea of that was to give ducati a bit of time to benefit from it now as as carado checking said when they tabled it nobody had raced with the front ride height device and they were trying to get ahead of the curve if you like now it turned out then that ducati already had this system in development we saw it at the sepang test last year in the hands of the pramac guys and things like that so that was where they were unhappy because they were obviously putting time and effort into this and then they find that it's leaving so they were given a year um you know, in which to, to, to sort of make something of it, if you like, get something back from their work. But it never really, as you saw, it never really caught on. I mean, Banyai won the World Championship without it. Uh, the Pramac guys kept developing it, Zarko particularly. But even, you know, as time went on and you knew that it was banned from next season, there wasn't really much point in him pursuing it that much either. So, yeah, it's, it's one of those things that's caused controversy because it was legal. It was a legal loophole. And that's what Ducati are not happy about. Um but all of these things, and I think again, Keith's mentioned this before. All these ride height devices—they're not—they're not what the sport wanted when they drew up the technical rules, if you like. And so you've got this compromise that that, that and Eddie was explaining between you're trying to to give the clever people the benefit for coming up with something that's legal, and you see this in Formula One a lot, I think, from what I read on Crash. Um, but at the same time, this is not an area that, that anyone wanted the sport to go into. Now, what the reason why is that if you were going to build a ride height device, you do it ele- electronically. That's what you would use on a road bike, for example. That would be the road relevance side. But that's banned in MotoGP. And so by banning it electronically, the assumption was that it wouldn't happen. Now, what Ducati did very cleverly was come up with a system that doesn't use electronics. And so that's why it's legal and it works and it obviously helps with performance. But at some stage, the rule makers have got to rein it in, really, because it's not something that they, it's not an area they wanted to go into. So that's well, the difficulty it, here, isn't it? It comes down to safety at the end of the day. Um, at the end of the day, the velocity at which you're approaching and accelerating out of corners and so on and so forth is, is now so high that suddenly the distance between the edge of the track and the barrier is, is too close for the velocity that some of these motorbikes are going at. Now, you can adjust a bit of that with tyres, obviously, but... I don't understand why they didn't just ban ride height. Everything. You know, we don't need it. It's it's not something that's that's going to take us anywhere particularly. Um, why, didn't, why didn't they just ban front and rear? Let's go back to normal. Um, it means that you can't get off the corner quite as lively as you perhaps would to sit it down. You, you can't get into, the, into turn one quite as fast as you would do from the start line because you can't get off the line quite as quick. It'll have that, that leveling factor to some extent. And of course, you lose a whole load of cost, you know, because developing that each and every year to 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 the, its finest degree takes money time, money and time. So I don't understand why they didn't ban the whole thing. But uh, again, it comes down to what you say: the manufacturers' association yeah. have got to agree unanimously. Which comes back down to something I said last year in one of our podcasts: was the fact is that they shouldn't have a unanimous situation. What you should have is a is a, a, a deciding. Um, group, if you like, and Dorna or, or somebody from Erta 
or both in actual fact, should be on that that board of decision makers regarding the, the rules. I mean, self-policing is quite true. We had all this for Ore with the with the Ducati scoop. Is it an aero thing or is it a tyre cooling device? Of course it was an aero thing that also acted as a tyre cooling device. You know, Yamaha were all up in arms about it, and I think Aprilia were more than anybody, but I think that Yamaha had got a scoop on the back already, but it was a rain deflector that they used it for. They hadn't developed it into what Ducati did. Ducati obviously took a look at Yamaha and thought, ah, we can modify that to work a bit better. You're always going to be in a position where clever people are going to come up with a, a slight loophole or a way around a rule. And like in Formula One, as you said, Pete, that, that you know they've allowed Ducati to have that for the year because... Otherwise, you're penalising innovation within the rules. And I think that's a bad thing. But I think sometimes you have to look at what's what's best for the sport. As these motorbikes get faster out of a corner and deeper into a corner or, or more velocity through the apex of a corner, you're going to end up with a situation where the barriers then become too close and places suddenly then become more dangerous as, as a racetrack point of view. Real difficult balance for organisers, you know, promoters and of course the teams to because you don't want to stifle innovation but you still need to keep it within the bounds of boundaries of where we're, we're racing and where we're going track wise does it, that make any sense it's a bit of a ramble i feel like i contradicted myself about six times during that last few uh, ah, no, i stopped listening <laughs> <laughs> thanks harry <laughs> <laughs> now you know how we feel god pete save the day <laughs> It was interesting at Aragon, but there was a technical press conference. Obviously, the technical bosses were all together there and they were asked about this. And you could see the visible differences between them on this subject. And, uh, you know, the, the big question that, that is hard to really answer is, should MotoGP follow things that are road relevance? Now, Formula One, look at Formula One car. I mean, where's the road relevance in that? But this was... This is quite, uh, for, the, for the teams in MotoGP, it came up amongst most of those that opposed the front ride height device and indeed the rear, a lot of them. The reason is that they don't see any road relevance in it for the, for the reasons that we've said, you do it differently, you do it electronically. So there's, you know, but on the other hand, you've got seamless gearboxes, which is, as someone else pointed out, that, you know, Honda, uh, you know, invent, came in with them in MotoGP, another loophole. Um, and they're not being used, obviously, in robots at the moment. They're way too expensive. Carbon brakes, slick tires. But, you know, how much does that matter? How much do you base it on? Well, can we put this on a road bike or not? This, this is, seems to be the thing where there, there was no, you know, there's no answer to it. There's no clear answer. But it seems to be for, for, for Honda, I think Honda, Suzuki, uh, yeah, pretty much Aprilia, KTM, they all raised that point in terms of the ride height that for them, that's that's a that's that's a big factor. Let's say is is there a future in this technology on the road bikes? Now Ducati pointed out, never say never. Now look at the wings. The wings are already being seen on road bikes, and uh, you know there is a safety issue there. I mean it's amazing, isn't it? That motorbikes have been fired through the air at three hundred kilometers an hour for decades, and no one thought about downforce <laughs> or or they say the need to to try and you know control. Uh, you know this, 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 the aerodynamics more in that way. Now that they've seen the possibilities, people seem to acknowledge that it is a lot safer. Certainly, the riders they say, you know, I'm quite happy that I've got front downforce that keeps my front wheel on the track. Um, you know, you know, at times when when they are doing these amazing speeds and in difficult conditions, crosswinds, whatever else. So it, it's a really difficult one. Honda was quite interesting. They, they sort of, they, they sort of, they went, well, okay, we don't have the seamless gearbox, obviously, on road bikes. But we've learned a lot from it, you know, from the control of the gearbox, the electronic side that we do apply. So then it gets even murkier, doesn't it, where you can apply bits of the knowledge and other bits you can't. But that, that's, I think, the fundamental question that, that MotoGP battles with quite a lot with these innovations is, is, is there a production future in this or not? Because that helps with well, budgets, doesn't it? I think the budget is the big problem, isn't it? I think that's, you know, you, you, if you don't have some kind of cost cap going on, I mean, a prototype series is a prototype series. MotoGP is a prototype series. You made the analogy back to Formula One, and yeah, you're right. And you've either got to have a bit of an attitude that, that prototypes do what they do, and we end up with technical innovation, and some will get ahead of everyone else at one point, and then it will be leapfrogged and so on. And, it, and that kind of competition benefits everyone in an engineering situation. But if you don't have a cost cap, I mean, go back to the days of six cylinder 125s or whatever it was, 250s. You know, 
with you know a power band of a thousand rpm or something and god knows how many gears to try and cope with that i mean the the cost of producing motorbikes in prototypes like that is so huge you wouldn't have a sport in the end it would be one manufacturer who could afford to spend the the millions and millions and millions that you would need to spend to get the best motorbike out of it so the rule book has several functions doesn't it obviously it allows technical innovation to be promoted, but it also has an effect of putting a cap on how much money you can spend to get somewhere. And that balance is just a nightmare, which is why I contradicted myself about half a dozen times a minute ago, because personally, prototype series, you should be able to do whatever you want to do. But realistically, things like ride height adjusters and stuff like that, you've got to say to yourself, who's that benefiting in the long run? Um, you know, even if you operate, only you're right in what Ducati said, never say never, because you don't know what innovation they're going to come up with for a road bike. And it might be a game changer on the road, you know, an electronic device when you gas the thing up and it doesn't spin the rear wheel out of control. I mean, we're talking about bloody powerful motorbikes on the road nowadays and, and conditions that really can't cope with them, perhaps as well as they could 20 or 30 years ago when we didn't have dirty great holes in every every inch of the road. Um, so you, you never know. Are aerodynamics really a thing on a road bike? I mean, I would say it's more of an aesthetic, to be honest, for most people. Most people aren't going to feel anything aerodynamically because within the speed limit, which is about bottom gear on a MotoGP bike, um, you know, you ain't going to feel anything at that, that speed because the aero going over the wing is not enough. You're only going to be getting it at sort of 100 mile an hour plus. So at the end of the day, there ain't no road bikes that are supposed to be doing 100 mile an hour plus, even though we've got road bikes that are well capable of, you know, 180 mile an hour without trying too hard. Um, so there's a whole load of issues that politically you've got to work out as well as technically and then budgetary. I mean, who'd sit on that bloody uh, manufacturer's um, bench? Not me. I'm just going to shout from the sidelines. <laughs> the short answer, Harry, as far as banning the right height device is just to come back to your original question is it sounds like they will try to get rid of them at the end of this five-year contract. Right, okay. So that started last year. We've talked about it a lot, haven't we, because Suzuki ripped theirs up. But they, they normally try to keep the rules stable within that five-year contract. So it sounds like when the next one starts, which will be 2027, I think, that's when we'll see... Well, it won't only be the right height device. We might see some bigger changes. You know, what will the engines be like? This is where the, the the organizers, everybody has to try and look in their crystal ball and decide what's the future of the sport, what's the future of the industry in in you know five ten years, and then write the rules to fit around that. Really difficult, isn't it? But that's 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 part of the game. And uh, yeah. as Jack and Andy said, the earlier you do it, the more radical you can be. If you like, you've got to give people warning. In other words. It don't get any more radical than Suzuki, though, does it? And that is the crux of the whole thing. Suzuki look forward as to where motorcycling is going and where their racing department fits in that, and they pulled the plug. And that was very sad indeed. Uh, well, look, let us know your thoughts. Do you think MotoGP should be uh, following road relevance, or do you think it should be outright pursuant of all things prototype and the, be the fastest and the very best and the elite of what motorcycling and motorcycle racing has to offer. Let us know. Um, but that's it. We're done for our January episode. Nice to be back for a little bit. Um, make sure you tuned in across Crash.net for all the latest news and analysis, as always, uh, across the week. And we shall be back on the 1st of February, I believe. And then we're back back up and running as normal. So one a week, 1st of Feb. So we'll have all the testing, shakedown, nonsense, straight into, into round one and previewing and reviewing and back to normal. So get your questions in. You can voice note us now. Uh, it's podcast at crash.net. Email us your voices. And if the question's good enough, we'll get it on air. Uh, you, or you can just write the old fashioned way. Um, not quite Keith's old fashioned way, but leave them in the comments section or you can tweet Instagram or Facebook us. Just search Crash Moto GP. Uh, we also now have a TikTok that we're going to be used. We're getting down with the kids at TikTok. It's crash underscore moto gp uh i'm not sure what we're going to be posting on there but i think we're going to be posting clips of the podcast um so look out for that uh anyway leave us a review wherever you get your podcast that's really important especially on apple thank you and we shall see you right back here on the 1st of february pete mclaren keith ewan thank you very much i've been harry benjamin see you next time flexibility is great that's why there's yoga flexibility for your insurance coverage is great too that's why there's united healthcare insurance plans 
Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, United Healthcare Insurance Plans offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage for medical, vision, dental, and more. One of these plans may be right for you if you're, say, between jobs, coming off your parents' plan, turning a side hustle into a full hustle, or even missed open enrollment. Want more flexibility? Find out more about United Healthcare Insurance Plans at UH1.com. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com slash trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. Here's a cool fact. A crocodile can't stick out its tongue. Another cool fact? You can get short-term health insurance for a month or just under a year in some states. United Healthcare short-term insurance plans are designed for people who are between jobs, coming off their parents' plan, or turning a side hustle into a full-time gig. Underwritten by Golden Rule Insurance Company, they offer flexible, budget-friendly coverage with access to a nationwide network of doctors and hospitals. Get more cool facts about United Healthcare short-term plans at uh1.com.